Section 2 of Stories by Foreign Authors, German Authors, Volume 1. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For further information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by William Jones. Stories by Foreign Authors, German Authors, Volume 1, by various, Section 2. The Philosopher's Pendulum, A Tale from Germany, by Rudolf Lindau. Part 1. During many long years, Hermann Frabicius had lost sight of his friend Henry Warren, and had forgotten him. Yet, when students together, they had loved each other dearly, and more than once they had sworn eternal friendship. This was at a period which, though not very remote, we seem to have left far behind us, a time when young men still believed in eternal friendship, and could feel enthusiasm for great deeds or great ideas. Youth in the present day is, or thinks itself, more rational. Herman and Warren in those days were supple-minded and ingenuous, and not only in the moment of elation, when they had sworn to be friends forever, but even the next day, and the day after that, in sober earnestness, they had vowed that nothing should separate them, and that they would remain united through life. The delusion had not lasted long. The pitiless machinery of life had caught up with the young men as soon as they left the university, and had thrown one to the right and the other to the left. For a few months, they had exchanged long and frequent letters. Then they had met once, and finally they had parted, each going his own way. Their letters had become more scarce, more brief, and at last had ceased altogether. It would really seem that the fact of having interest in common is the one thing sufficiently powerful to prolong and keep up the life of epistolary relations. A man may feel great affection for an absent friend, and yet not find time to write him ten lines, while he will willingly expend daily many hours on a stranger from whom he expects something. Nonetheless, he may be a true and honest friend. Man is naturally selfish. The instinct of self-preservation requires it of him. Provided he be not wicked, that he show himself ready to serve his neighbor, after himself, no one has a right to complain or to accuse him of hard-heartedness. At the time this story begins, Hermann had even forgotten whether he had written to Warren last, or whether he had left his friend's last letter unanswered. In a word, the correspondence which began so enthusiastically had entirely ceased. Hermann inhabited a large town, and had acquired some reputation as a writer. From time to time, in the course of his walks, he would meet a young student with brown hair and mild, honest-looking blue eyes, whose countenance, with its frank and youthful smile, inspired confidence and invited the sympathy of the passer-by. 
whenever Hermann met this young man, he would say to himself, How like Henry at twenty! And for a few minutes, memory would travel back to the already distant days of youth, and he would long to see his dear old Warren again. More than once, on the spur of the moment, he had resolved to try and find out what had become of his old university comrade. But these good intentions were never followed up. On reaching home he would find his table covered with books and pamphlets to be reviewed, and letters from publishers or newspaper editors asking for a copy, to say nothing of invitations to dinner, which must be accepted or refused. In a word, he found so much urgent business to dispatch that the evening would go by and weariness would overtake him before he could make time for inquiring about his old friend. In the course of years, the life of most men becomes so regulated that no time is left for anything beyond necessary work. But indeed, the man who lives only for his own pleasure, doing so to speak nothing, is rarely better in this respect than the writer, the banker, and the savant, who are overburdened with work. One afternoon, as Herman, according to his custom, was returning home about five o'clock, his porter handed him a letter bearing the American postmark. He examined it closely before opening it. The large and rather stiff handwriting on the address seemed familiar, and yet he could not say to whom it belonged. Suddenly his countenance brightened, and he exclaimed, A letter from Henry! He tore open the envelope and read as follows. My dear Hermann, it is fortunate that one of us at least should have attained celebrity. I saw your name on the outside of a book of which you are the author. I wrote it once to the publisher. That obliging man answered me by return of post, and thanks to these circumstances, I am enabled to tell you that I will land in Hamburg toward the end of September. Write to me there, Possevresante, and let me know if you are willing to receive me for a few days. I can take Leipzig on my way home, and would do so most willingly if you say that you would see me again with pleasure. Your old friend, Henry Warren. Below the signature, there was a postscript of a single line. This is my present face. And from an inner envelope, Herman drew a small photograph, which he carried to the window to examine leisurely. As he looked, a painful impression of sadness came over him. The portrait was that of an old man. Long gray hair fell in disorder over a careworn brow. The eyes, deep sunk in their sockets, had a strange and disquieting look of fixity, and the mouth, surrounded by deep furrows, seemed to tell its own long tale of sorrow. Poor Henry, said Hermann, this then is your present face? And yet he is not old, he is younger than I am. He can scarcely be thirty-eight. Can I, too, be already an old man? He walked up to the glass 
and looked attentively at the reflection of his own face. No, those were not the features of a man whose life was near its close. The eye was bright, and the complexion indicated vigor and health. Still, it was not a young face. Thought and care had traced their furrows round the mouth and about the temples, and their general expression was one of melancholy not to say despondency. Well, well, we have grown old, said Hermann with a sigh. I had not thought about it this long while, and now this photograph has reminded me of it painfully. Then he took up his pen, and wrote to say how happy he would be to see his old friend again as soon as possible. The next day, chance brought him face to face in the street with the young student who was so like Warren. Who knows, thought Hermann, fifteen or twenty years hence, this young man may look no brighter than Warren does today. Ah, life is not easy. It has a way of saddening joyous looks and imparting severity to smiling lips. As for me, I have no real right to complain of my life. I have lived pretty much like everybody, a little satisfaction, and then a little disappointment, turn by turn, and often small worries. And so my youth has gone by, I scarcely know how. On the 2nd of October, Hermann received a telegram from Hamburg announcing the arrival of Warren for the same evening. At the appointed hour, he went to the railway station to meet his friend. He saw him get down from the carriage slowly and rather heavily, and he watched him for a few seconds before accosting him. Warren appeared to him old and broken down, and even more feeble than he had expected to see him from his portrait. He wore a traveling suit of gray cloth, so loose and wide that it hung in folds on the gaunt and stooping figure. A large, wide-awake hat was drawn down to his very eyes. The newcomer looked right and left, seeking no doubt to discover his friend. Not seeing him, he turned his weary and languid steps toward the way out. Hermann then came forward. Warren recognized him at once. A sunny, youthful smile lighted up his countenance, and evidently, much moved, he stretched out his hand. An hour later, the two friends were seated opposite to each other before a well-spread table in Hermann's comfortable apartments. Warren ate very little, but on the other hand, Hermann noticed with surprise and some anxiety that his friend, who had been formerly a model of sobriety, drank a good deal. Wine, however, seemed to have no effect on him. The pale face did not flush. There was the same cold, fixed look in the eye, and his speech, though slow and dull in tone, betrayed no embarrassment. When the servant, who had waited at dinner and taken away the dessert and brought in coffee, Herman wheeled two big armchairs close to the fire and said to his friend, Now we will not be interrupted. Light a cigar. Make yourself at home and tell me all you have been doing since we parted. Warren pushed away the cigars. 
if you do not mind he said i will smoke my pipe i am used to it and i prefer it to the best of cigars so saying he drew from its well-worn case an old pipe whose color showed it had been long used and filled it methodically with moist blackish tobacco then he lighted it and after sending forth one or two loud puffs of smoke he said with an air of sovereign satisfaction a quiet comfortable room a friend a good pipe after dinner and no care for the morrow that's what i like herman cast a sidelong glance at his companion and was painfully struck at his appearance the tall gaunt frame in its stooping attitude the grayish hair and sad fixed look the thin legs crossed one over the other the elbow resting on the knee and supporting the chin in a word the whole strange figure as it sat there bore no resemblance to henry warren the friend of his youth this man was a stranger a mysterious being even nevertheless the affection he felt for his friend was not impaired on the contrary pity entered into his heart how ill the world must have used him thought hermann to have thus disfigured him then he said aloud now then let me have your story unless you prefer to hear mine first he strove to speak lightly but he felt that the effort was not successful as to warren he went on smoking quietly without saying a word the long silence at last became painful herman began to feel an uncomfortable sensation of distress in presence of the strange guest he had brought into his home after a few minutes he ventured to ask for the third time will you make up your mind to speak or must i begin warren gave vent to a little noiseless laugh <laughs> i am thinking how i can answer your question the difficulty is that to speak truly i have absolutely nothing to tell i wonder now and it was that that made me pause how it has happened that throughout my life i have been bored by nothing as if it would not have been quite as natural quite as easy and far pleasanter to have been amused by that same nothing which has been my life the fact is my dear fellow that i have had no deep sorrow to bear neither have i been happy i have not been extraordinarily successful and have drawn none of the prizes of life but i am well aware that in this respect my lot resembles that of thousands of other men i have always been obliged to work i have earned my bread by the sweat of my brow i have had money difficulties i have even had a hopeless passion but what then everyone has had that besides that was in bygone days i have learned to bear it and to forget what pains and angers me is to have to confess that my life has been spent without satisfaction and without happiness he paused an instant and then resumed more calmly a few years ago 
I was foolish enough to believe that things might in the end turn out better. I was a professor with a very moderate salary at the school at Elmira. I taught all I knew, and much that I had to learn in order to be able to teach it. Greek and Latin, German and French, mathematics and physical sciences. During the so-called play hours I even gave music lessons. In the course of the whole day there were few moments of liberty for me. I was perpetually surrounded by a crowd of rough, ill-bred boys, whose only object during the lessons was to catch me making a fault in English. When evening came, I was quite worn out. Still, I could always find time to dream for half an hour or so, with my eyes open before going to bed. Then all my desires were accomplished, and I was supremely happy. At last I had drawn a prize. I was successful in everything. I was rich, honored, powerful. What more can I say? I astonished the world, or rather I astonished Ellen Gilmore, who for me was the whole world. Herman, have you ever been as mad? Have you, too, in a waking dream, been in turn a statesman, a millionaire, the author of a sublime work, or victorious general, the head of a great political party? Have you dreamt nonsense such as that? I, who am here, have been all I say in dreamland. Never mind, that was a good time. Ellen Gilmore, whom I have just mentioned, was the eldest sister of one of my pupils, Francis Gilmore, the most undisciplined boy of the school. His parents, nevertheless, insisted on his learning something, and as I had the reputation of possessing unwearying patience, I was selected to give him private lessons. That was how I obtained a footing in the Gilmore family. Later on, when they had found out that I was somewhat of a musician, you may remember, perhaps, that for an amateur I was a tolerable performer on the piano, I went every day to the house to teach Latin and Greek to Francis, and music to Ellen. Now, picture to yourself the situation, and then laugh at your friend, as he has laughed at himself many a time. On the one side, the Gilmore side, a large fortune and no lack of pride, an intelligent, shrewd, and practical father, an ambitious and vain mother, an affectionate but spoiled boy, and a girl of nineteen, surpassingly lovely, with a cultivated mind and great good sense. On the other hand, you have Henry Warren, aged twenty-nine, in his dreams the author of a famous work, or the commander-in-chief of the northern armies, or it may be president of the republic. In reality, professor at Elmira College, with a modest stipend of seventy dollars a month. Was it not evident that the absurdity of my position as a suitor for Ellen would strike me at once? Of course it did. In my lucid moments, when I was not dreaming, I was a very rational man who had read a good deal and learned not a little, and it would have been sheer madness in me to have indulged for an instant the hope of a marriage 
between Ellen and myself. I knew it was an utter impossibility, as impossible as to be elected President of the United States, and yet, in spite of myself, I dreamt of it. However, I must do myself the justice to add that my passion inconvenienced nobody. I would no more have spoken of it than of my imaginary command of the Army of the Potomac. The pleasures which my love afforded me could give umbrage to no one. Yet I am convinced that Ellen read my secret. Not that she ever said a word to me on the subject. No look or syllable of hers could have made me suspect that she had guessed this state of my mind. One single incident, I remember, which was not in accordance with her habitual reserve in this respect, I noticed one day that her eyes were red. Of course, I dared not ask her why she had cried. During the lesson, she seemed absent, and when leaving, she said, without looking at me, I may perhaps be obliged to interrupt our lessons for some little time. I am very sorry. I wish you every happiness. Then, without raising her eyes, she quickly left the room. I was bewildered. What could her words mean? And why had they been said in such an affectionate tone? The next day, Francis Gilmore called to inform me, with his father's compliments, that he was to have four days' holiday, because his sister had just been betrothed to Mr. Howard, a wealthy New York merchant, and that, for the occasion, there would be great festivities at home. Thenceforward, there was an end of the dreams which up to that moment had made life pleasant. In sober reason, I had no more cause to deplore Ellen's marriage than to feel aggrieved because Grant had succeeded Johnson as president. Nevertheless, you can scarcely conceive how much this affair, I mean the marriage, grieved me. My absolute nothingness suddenly stared me in the face. I saw myself as I was, a mere schoolmaster, with no motive for pride in the past, or pleasure in the present, or hope in the future. Warren's pipe had gone out while he was telling his story. He cleaned it out methodically, drew from his pocket a cake of Cavendish tobacco, and after cutting off with a penknife the necessary quantity, he refilled his pipe and lit it. The way in which he performed all these little operations betrayed a long habit. He had ceased to speak while he was relighting his pipe, and kept on whistling between his teeth. Hermann looked on silently. After a few minutes, and when the pipe was in good order, Warren resumed his story. For a few weeks I was terribly miserable. Not so much because I had lost Ellen, a man cannot lose what he has never hoped to possess, as from the ruin of all my illusions. During these days I plucked and ate by the dozen of the fruits of the tree of self-knowledge, and I found them very bitter. I ended up by leaving Elmira to seek my fortunes elsewhere. 
I knew my trade well. Long practice had taught me how to make the best of my learning, and I never had any difficulty in finding employment. I taught successively in upwards of a dozen states of the Union. I can scarcely recollect the names of all the places where I have lived. Sacramento, Chicago, St. Louis, Cincinnati, Boston, New York. I have been everywhere. Everywhere. And everywhere I have met with the same rude schoolboys, just as I have found the same regular and irregular verbs in Latin and Greek. If you would see a man thoroughly satiated and saturated with schoolboys and classical grammars, look at me. In the leisure time, which, whatever might be my work, I still contrived to make for myself, I indulged in philosophical reflections. Then it was I took to the habit of smoking so much. Warren stopped suddenly, and looking straight before him, appeared plunged in thought. Then, passing his hand over his forehead, he repeated in an absent manner, Yes, of smoking so much. I also took to another habit, he added somewhat hastily, but that has nothing to do with my story. The theory which especially occupied my thoughts was that of the oscillations of an ideal instrument of my own imagining, to which, in my own mind, I give the name of the philosopher's pendulum. To this invention I owe the quietude of mind which has supported me for many years, and which, as you see, I now enjoy. I said to myself that my great sorrow, if I may call it without presumption, had arisen merely from my wish to be extraordinarily happy. When, in his dreams, a man has carried presumption so far as to attain the heights of celebrity, or to be the husband of Ellen Gilmore, there is nothing wonderful if, on awaking, he sustained a heavy fall before reaching the depths of reality. Had I been less ambitious in my desires, their realization would have been easier, or at any rate the disappointment would have been less bitter. Starting from this principle, I arrived at the logical conclusion that the best means to avoid being unhappy is to wish for as little happiness as possible. This truth was discovered by my philosophical forefathers many centuries before the birth of Christ, and I lay no claim to being the finder of it. But the outward symbol which I ended by giving to this idea is, at least I fancy it is, of my own invention. Give me a sheet of paper and a pencil, he added, turning to his friend, and with a few lines I can demonstrate clearly the whole thing. Hermann handed him what he wanted without a word. Warren then began gravely to draw a large semicircle open at the top, and above the semicircular line a pendulum which fell perpendicularly and touched the circumference at the exact point where on the dial of a clock would be inscribed the figure six. This done, he wrote on the right-hand side of the pendulum, beginning from the bottom and at the places of the hours five, four, and three, the words, Moderate Desires, Great Hopes, 
ambition, unbridled passion, mania of greatness. Then, turning the paper upside down, he wrote on the opposite side, where on a dial would be marked seven, eight, and nine, the words slight troubles, deep sorrow, disappointment, despair. Lastly, in the place of number six, just where the pendulum fell, he sketched a large black spot, which he shaded off with great care, and above which he wrote, like a scroll, dead stop, absolute repose. Having finished this little drawing, Warren laid down his pipe, inclined his head on one side, and raising his eyebrows examined his work with a critical frown. This compass is not quite complete, he said. There is something missing. Between dead stop and moderate desires on the right, and slight troubles on the left, there is the beautiful line of calm and rational indifference. However, such as the drawing is, it is sufficient to demonstrate my theory. You follow me? Hermann nodded affirmatively. He was greatly pained. In lieu of the friend of his youth, from whom he had hoped a brilliant future, here was a poor monomaniac. You see, said Warren, speaking collectedly like a professor, if I raise my pendulum till it reaches the point of moderate desires, and then let it go, it will naturally swing to the point of slight troubles and go no further. Then it will oscillate for some time in a more and more limited space on the line of indifference, and finally it will stand still without any jerk on dead stop, absolute repose. That is a great consolation. He paused, as if waiting for some remark from Hermann, but as the latter remained silent, Warren resumed his demonstration. You understand now, I suppose, what I am coming to. If I raise the pendulum to the point of ambition or mania of greatness, and then let it go, that same law which I have already applied will drive it to deep sorrow or despair. That is quite clear, is it not? Quite clear, repeated Hermann sadly. Very well, continued Warren with perfect gravity. For my misfortune, I discovered this fine theory rather late. I had not set bounds to my dreams, and limited them to trifles. I had wished to be president of the Republic, an illustrious savant, the husband of Ellen. No great things, eh? What say you to my modesty? I had raised the pendulum to such a giddy height that when it slipped from my impotent hands, it naturally performed a long oscillation, and touched the point of despair. That was a miserable time. I hope you have never suffered what I suffered then. I lived in a perpetual nightmare, like the stupor at intoxication. He paused, as he had done before, and then, with a painfully nervous laugh, he added, Yes, like intoxication. I drink. Suddenly a spasm seemed to pass over his face. He looked serious and sad as before, and he said with a shudder, It is a terrible thing 
to see one's self inwardly and to know that one is fallen after this he remained long silent at last raising his head he turned to his friend and said have you had enough of my story or would you like to hear it to the end i am grieved at all you have told me said hermann but pray go on it is better i should know all yes and i feel too that it relieves me to pour out my heart well i used to drink one takes to the horrid habit in america far easier than anywhere else i was obliged to give up more than one good situation because i had ceased to be respectable anyhow i always managed to find employment without any great difficulty i never suffered from want though i have never known plenty if i spent too much in drink i took it out of my dress and my boots eighteen months after i had left elmira i met ellen one day in central park in new york i was aware that she had been married a twelvemonth she knew me again at once and spoke to me i would have wished to sink into the earth i knew that my clothes were shabby that i looked poor and i fancied that she must discern on my face the traces of the bad habits i had contracted but she did not or would not see anything she held out her hand and said in her gentle voice i am very glad to see you again mr warren i have inquired about you but neither my father nor francis could tell me what had become of you i want to ask you to resume the lessons you used to give me perhaps you do not know where i live this is my address and she gave me her card i stammered out a few unmeaning words in reply to her invitation she looked at me smiling kindly the while but suddenly the smile vanished and she added have you been ill mr warren you seem worn yes i answered too glad to find an excuse for my appearance yes i have been ill and i am still suffering i am very sorry she said in a low voice laugh at me hermann call me an incorrigible madman but believe me when i say that her looks conveyed to me the impression of more than common interest or civility a thrilling sense of pain shot through my frame what had i done that i should be so cruelly tried a mist passed before my eyes anxiety intemperance sleeplessness had made me weak i tottered backward a few steps she turned horribly pale all around us was the crowd the careless indifferent crowd come and see me soon she added hastily and left me i saw her get into a carriage which she had doubtless quitted to take a walk and when she drove past she put her head out and looked at me with her eyes wide open there was an almost wildly anxious expression in them i went home my way led me past her house it was a palace i shut myself in my wretched hotel room and once more i fell into dreaming ellen loved me she admired me she was not forever lost to me 
the pendulum was swinging you see up as high as madness explain to me if you can how it happens that a being perfectly rational in ordinary life should at certain seasons and so to speak voluntarily be bereft of reason to excuse and explain my temporary insanity i am ready to admit that the excitement to which i gave way may have been a symptom of the nervous malady which laid hold of me a few days later and stretched me for weeks upon a bed of pain as i became convalescent reason and composure returned but it was too late in the space of two months twenty years had passed over my head when i rose from my sick-bed i was as feeble and as broken down as you see me now my past had been cheerless and dim without one ray of happiness yet that past was all my life henceforward there is nothing left for me to undertake to regret or to desire the pendulum swung idly backwards and forwards on the line of indifference i wondered what are the feelings of successful men of men who have been victorious generals prime ministers celebrated authors and that sort of thing upheld by a legitimate pride do they retire satisfied from the lists when evening comes or do they lay down their arms as i did disappointed and dejected and worn out with the fierce struggle can no man with impunity look into his own heart and ask himself how his life has been spent here warren made a still longer pause than before and appeared absorbed in gloomy thought at last he resumed in a lower tone i had not followed up ellen's invitation but in some way she had discovered my address and knew of my illness do not be alarmed my dear Herman. my story will not become romantic no heavenly vision appeared to me during my fever i felt no gentle white hands laid upon my burning brow i was nursed at the hospital and very well nursed too i figured there as number three eighty and the whole affair was as you see as prosaic as possible but on quitting the hospital and as i was taking leave of the manager he handed me a letter in which was enclosed a note for five hundred dollars in the envelope there was also the following anonymous note an old friend begs your acceptance as a loan of the enclosed sum it will be time enough to think of paying off this debt when you are strong enough to resume work and you can then do it by installments of which you can yourself fix the amount and remit them to the hospital of new york it was well meant no doubt but it caused me a painful impression my determination was taken at once i refused without hesitation i asked the manager who had been watching me with a friendly smile while i read the letter whether he could give the name of the person who had sent it in spite of his repeated assurances that he did not know it i never doubted for a single instant that he was concealing the truth after a few seconds reflection i asked if he would undertake to forward an answer to my unknown correspondent and upon his consenting to do so 
I promised that he should have my answer the next day. I thought long over my letter. One thing was plain to me. It was Ellen who had come to my help. How could I reject her generous aid without wounding her or appearing ungrateful? After great hesitation I wrote a few lines, which, as far as I can recollect, ran thus. I thank you for the interest you have shown me, but it is impossible for me to accept the sum you place at my disposal. Do not be angry with me because I return it. Do not withdraw your sympathy. I will strive to remain worthy of it, and will never forget your goodness. A few days later, after having confided this letter to the manager, I left New York for San Francisco. For several years I heard nothing of Ellen. Her image grew gradually fainter, and at last almost disappeared from my memory. The dark river that bore the frail bark which carried me and my fortunes was carrying me smoothly and unconsciously along towards the mysterious abyss where all that exists is engulfed. Its course lay through a vast desert, and the banks which passed before my eyes were of fearful sameness indescribable lassitude took possession of my whole being i had never knowingly practised evil i had loved and sought after good why then was i so wretched i would have blessed the rock which wrecked my bark so that i might have been swallowed up and have gone down to my eternal rest up to the day when i heard of ellen's betrothal i had hoped that the morrow would bring happiness the long-wished-for morrow had come at last, gloomy and colorless, without realizing any of my vague hopes. Henceforth, my life was at an end. Warren said these last words so indistinctly that Hermann could scarcely hear them. He seemed to be speaking to himself rather than to his friend. Then he raised the forefinger of his right hand, and after moving it slowly from right to left in imitation of the swing of a pendulum, he placed it on the large black dot he had drawn on the sheet of paper exactly below his pendulum, and said, Dead stop. Absolute repose. Would that the end were come. Another still longer interval of silence succeeded, and at last Hermann felt constrained to speak. How came you to make up your mind, he said, to return to Europe? Ah, oh, yes, to be sure, answered Warren hurriedly. The story, the foolish story, is not ended. In truth, it has no end, as it had no beginning. It is a thing without form or purpose, and less the history of a life than of a mere journeying toward death. Still, I will finish, following the chronological order. It does not weary you? No, no, go on, my dear friend. Very well. I spent several years in the United States. The pendulum worked well. It came and went, to and fro, slowly along the line of indifference, without ever transgressing as its extreme limits on either hand. Moderate desires and slight troubles. I led obscurely a contemplative life, and I was generally considered a queer character. 
I fulfilled my duties and took little heed of any one. Whenever I had an hour at my disposal, I sought solitude in the neighboring woods, far from the town and from mankind. I used to lie down under the big trees. Every season in turn, spring and summer, autumn and winter, had its peculiar charm for me. My heart, so full of bitterness, felt lightened as soon as I listened to the rustling of the foliage overhead. The forest! There is nothing finer in all creation. A deep calm seemed to settle down upon me. I was growing old. I was forgetting. It was about this time that, in consequence of my complete indifference to all surroundings, I acquired the habit of answering very well to everything that was said. The words came so naturally that I was not aware of my continual use of them, until one day one of my fellow teachers happened to tell me that masters and pupils alike had given me the nickname of very well. Is it not odd that one who has never succeeded in anything should be known as very well? I have only one other little adventure to relate, and I will have told all. Then I can listen to your story. Last year my journeys brought me to the neighborhood of Elmira. It was holiday time. I had nothing to do, and I had in my purse a hundred hardly earned dollars, or thereabout. The wish seized me to revisit the scene of my joys and my sorrows. I had not set foot in the place for more than seven years. I was so changed that nobody would know me again, nor would I have cared much if they had. After visiting the town and looking at my old school and the house where Ellen had lived, I bent my steps toward the park, which is situated in the environs, a place where I used to often to walk in company of my youthful dreams. It was September, and evening was closing in. The oblique rays of the setting sun sent a reddish gleam the leafy branches of the old oaks. I seated on a bench beneath a tree on one side of the path. As I drew near, I recognized Ellen. I remained rooted to the spot where I stood, not daring to move a step. She was stooping forward with her head bent down, while with the end of her parasol she traced lines upon the gravel. She had not seen me. I turned back instantly and retired without making any noise. When I had gone a little distance, I left the path and struck into the wood. Once there I looked back cautiously. Ellen was still at the same place and in the same attitude. Heaven knows what thoughts passed through my brain. I longed to see her closer. What danger was there? I was sure she would not know me again. I walked toward her with the careless step of a casual passer-by, and in a few minutes passed before her. When my shadow fell on the path, she looked up, and her eyes met. My heart was beating fast. Her look was cold and indifferent. But suddenly... A strange light shot into her eyes, and she made a quick movement, as if to rise. I saw no more, and went on without turning around. Before I could get out of the park, her carriage drove past me, and I saw her once more, as I had seen her five years before in Central Park, pale 
with distended eyes and her anxious looks fixed on me. Why did I not bow to her? I cannot say. My courage failed me. I saw the light die out of her eyes. I almost fancied that I saw her heave a sigh of relief as she threw herself back carelessly in the carriage, and she disappeared. I was then thirty-six, and I am almost ashamed to relate the schoolboy's trick of which I was guilty. I sent her the following lines. A devoted friend, whom you obliged in former days, and who met you yesterday in the park without your recognizing him, sends you his remembrances. I posted this letter a few minutes before getting into the train which was to take me to New York, and as I did so, my heart beat as violently as though I had performed a heroic deed. Great adventures, forsooth! And to think that my life presents none more striking, and that trifles such as these are the only food for my memory. A twelve-month later I met Francis Gilmore in Broadway. The world is small, so small that it is really difficult to keep out of the way of people one has once known. The likeness of my former pupil to his sister struck me, and I spoke to him. He looked at me at first with a puzzled expression, but after a few moments of hesitation he recognized me, a bright smile lighted up his pleasant face and he shook hands warmly mr warren he exclaimed how glad i am to see you ellen and i have often talked of you and wondered what could have become of you why did we never hear from you i did not suppose it would interest you i spoke timidly and yet i owed nothing to the young fellow and wanted nothing of him you wrong us by saying that replied francis do you think me ungrateful do you fancy i have forgotten our pleasant walks in former days and the long conversations we used to have you alone ever taught me anything and it is to you i owe the principles that have guided me through life many a day i have thought of you and regretted you sincerely as regards ellen no one has ever filled your place with her she plays to this day the same pieces of music that you taught her, and follows all your directions with a fidelity that would touch you. How are your father and mother, and how is your sister, I inquired, feeling more deeply moved than I can express. My poor mother died three years ago. It is Ellen who keeps house now. Your brother-in-law lives with you then? My brother-in-law, replied Francis with surprise, did you not know that he was on board the Atlantic, which was lost last year in the passage from Liverpool to New York? I could find no words to reply. As to that, added Francis, with great composure, between you and me, he was no great loss. My dear brother-in-law was not by any means what my father fancied he was when he gave him my sister as a wife. The whole family has often regretted the marriage, Ellen lived apart from her husband for many years before his death. I nodded, so as to express my interest in his communications, but I could not, for worlds, have uttered a syllable. "'You will come and see us soon, I hope,' added Francis, without noticing my emotion. 
we're still at the same place. But to make sure, here's my card. Come, Mr. Warren, name your own day to come and dine with us. I promise you a hearty welcome. I got off by promising to write the next day, and we parted. Fortunately, my mind had lost its former liveliness. The pendulum, far from being urged to unruly motion, continued to swing slowly in the narrow space where it had oscillated for so many years. I said to myself that to renew my intimacy with the Gilmores would be to run the almost certain risk of reviving the sorrows and the disappointments of the past. I was then calm and rational. It would be madness in me, I felt, to aspire to the hand of a young, wealthy, and much-admired widow. To venture to see Allen again was to incur the risk of seeing my reason once more wrecked, and the fatal chimera which had been the source of all my misery start into life again. If we are to believe what poets say, love ennobles man and exalts him into a demigod. It may be so, but it turns him likewise into a fool and a madman. That was my case. At any cost, I was to guard against that fatal passion. I argued seriously with myself, and I determined to let the past be, and to reject every opportunity of bringing it to life again. A few days before my meeting with Francis, I had received tidings of the death of an old relative whom I scarcely knew. In my childhood I had, on one or two occasions, spent my holidays at his house. He was gloomy and taciturn, but nevertheless he had always welcomed me kindly. I have a vague remembrance of having been told that he had been in love with my mother once upon a time, and that upon hearing of her marriage he had retired to the solitude which he never left till the day of his death. But be that as it may, I had not lost my place in his affections, it seems. He had continued to feel an interest in me, and on his deathbed he had remembered me and left me the greater part of his not very considerable fortune. I inherited little money, but there was a small, comfortably furnished country house and an adjoining farm let on long lease for two hundred and forty pounds per annum. This was wealth for me, and more than enough to satisfy all my wants. Since I had heard of this legacy, I had been doubtful as to my movements. My chance meeting with Francis settled the matter. I resolved at once to leave America, and to return to live in my native country. I knew your address, and wrote to you at once. I trusted that the sight of my old and only friend would console me for the disappointments that life has inflicted on me, and I have not been deceived. At last I have been able to open my heart to a fellow creature and relieve myself of the heavy burden which I have borne alone ever since our separation. Now I feel lighter. You are not a severe judge. Doubtless you deplore my weakness, but you do not condemn me. If, as I have already said, I have done no good, neither have I committed any wicked action. I have been a nonentity, an utterly useless being, one too many, like the sad hero of Turgenev's sad story. Before leaving, I wrote to Francis, informing him that the death of a relative 
obliged me to return to Europe, and given him your address, so as not to seem to be running away from him. Then I went on board, and at last reached your home, Dixie. Warren, who during this long story had taken care to keep his pipe alight, and had, moreover, nearly drained the bottle of port placed before him, now declared himself ready to listen to his friend's confession. But Hermann had been saddened by all he had heard, and was in no humor for talking. He remarked that it was getting late, and proposed to postpone any further conversation till the morrow. Warren merely answered, Very well, knocked the ashes out of his pipe, shared out the remainder of the wine between his host and himself, and raising his glass, said in a somewhat solemn tone, To our youth, Hermann. After emptying his glass at one draught, he replaced it on the table, and said complacently, It is long since I have drunk with so much pleasure. For this time I have not drunk to forgetfulness, but to memory. End of section 2